Shabbat Shalom. All right, well, we are going to be starting a new series today on the book of Jude. And uh, I just want to kind of give you guys a little backstory to uh, how this developed, why I'm even going here. Uh, you got to understand, this is not where I was going. I was going in a completely different direction just days ago. And uh, at the last moment, I was driving in the car up to pick up my daughter, and uh, I got struck. I mean, <clears throat> it was interesting because what I was working on, I was travailing. I was fighting. I didn't have any peace on it. And that's so, I'm not accustomed to that. It happens once in a while. But I was like fighting something. I couldn't understand it. And to the point where it was getting very, very frustrating. So I'm on my way. I'm in the car. And it literally is just like it hits you. Okay, I'm supposed to do the book of Jude. There's no question about it. This is what I'm supposed to do. The second I grabbed hold of that, there's perfect peace, there's perfect clarity, and that passion that I'm so accustomed to getting when I'm, you know, tasting and seeing that the Lord is good, that hit. And so I, I say that because I'm excited what the Lord's going to do with this. I got to be honest with you, I don't know what he's going to do, but uh, I'm anticipating this is going to be a really, really powerful series, you know? And so um, before we get started, a couple things that I just want to preface about uh, this series is, uh, you know, I, number one, I didn't pick this. I didn't have some supernatural revelation because it's one of the shortest books in the Bible. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Don't go there. That, that, is, that is not the case. I will admit, I appreciate that. I appreciate its brevity, um, but that's not why, why I picked it. And that's certainly not why the Lord's given it to me. It's about content. The content that we see in this epistle, I'm telling you right now, there's an urgency. There's a message that Jude is delivering that if, if, if I didn't know better, he had written yesterday. But he actually wrote this almost 2,000 years ago, over 1,900 years ago. Now, that's really something. There's, there's things in this epistle that are, are profound wisdom that we need to glean from. And I'm going to tell you there are warnings that we need to heed right now. Every time, you know, as we're looking out our windows at the landscape of America right now, there are things that Jude is speaking to us. And we're going to, as we go through this, I think you're going to appreciate that. The second thing to, to mention is that today is just going to be chill. This is going to be a very laid back. We're going to ease into this epistle. Uh, next week is going to be different. Next week, things are going to heat up. It's going to get much more intense. Uh, so, but I appreciate being able to enter into this epistle just to kind of get our bearings. I want to just today, I want to just look at a little bit of historical backdrop so that we can appreciate, get some perspective on the book itself. And so here's kind of our itinerary for today. We're going to look at the date uh, this epistle was written, uh, the author. Uh, we are going to look at the intended audience, and we're going to look at its attestation or its legitimacy and then we will end today by actually, believe it or not, we're going to get into the first two verses. And so we'll have taken down two verses out of this very, very brief book that doesn't even have a second chapter. There's only 25 verses. So we're making some good headway, uh, at least historically in comparison. All right, with that said, let's go. Beginning with the date written, when was this written? The scholars say it was, you know, written somewhere between 60 and 80 80 AD. 
I, I'm going to close that gap for you. I am of a very strong opinion for many reasons why it was written probably between about 60 or even 62 to 68. That's when this thing was written. And I'll, and I'll tell you why I believe that. Uh, number one, what happened in 70 AD? Right in the middle here, we know it's the destruction of Jerusalem. Absolutely one of the most monumental things that has ever happened in the history of the world, let alone the history of Israel. Monumental. All you need to do is go through and read the book of Jude. Read what he is writing, the content. And you will quickly see there is no way Jude wrote this post-destruction of Jerusalem. He would have absolutely mentioned it. No, this is not even debatable because he has the opportunity. This is the vein he's going in. He certainly would have took the time to talk about the most influential thing his eyes would have ever seen other than Yeshua himself coming. And so very significant. We we, we can be uh, pretty assured that it was written before 70 AD. The other thing that I think is critically important is that 2 Peter was written, they estimate, anywhere from about 62, 63 to 68 AD. What does that matter? 2 Peter is a companion to the epistle of Jude. Now this is very important because one of the things that you're going to notice that we do throughout this series is we're going to be drawing from 2 Peter. And the reason is, is Peter gives the exact same sermon that Jude gives. Identical sermons. It's uncanny, actually. In fact, you'll find scholars debating, maybe that's too strong of a term, discussing who came first. Who is copying who? Was Peter looking to Jude's epistle and saying, man, that is a phenomenal message. That that is the message we need to hear today. I'm going to take that and I'm going to go. And he drafts 2 Peter. Or was it Jude looking at Peter? And saying, that's a powerful message. You know what? I'm going to take that, and I'm going to run with it. I mean, this is the discussion, because it's that uncanny. they're, They're parallel. They're companion documents, companion messages. And so this is, this is very significant in regard to, you know, if we're going to assess the date, knowing, I, you know, Jude is going to be written around the time Peter is written. If not, and listen to me carefully, if not come to being at the very same time. It's plausible. It's plausible because when you, you're going to get to know Jude a little bit today, this guy rolled in the highest of circles. He rolled with the apostles. And when you're in that circle, you can just imagine, hey, the guy's getting together. We're all sitting down and we're chewing on what is happening to the faith. What things are we concerned about? What things should we be bringing to the people? It's plausible that they were even in the same meeting. And it could have been a situation where Peter rose up and he just gives this message. He takes this message, wants to write it down, and then Jude copies it. And Jude says, this is, this is what needs to go out when you hear a good message. In addition to that, we think about when the date is written, I always want historical context. As much as possible, we need to touch and, and taste and smell what was going on at that time. You know, if you remember our Hebrews series, this is one of the things we covered. We looked at, and, and Hebrews was written around the same time that the epistle Jude was. What was going on at that time? Well, I can tell you this. 
Number one, Jews were coming into the faith of the Messiah Yeshua. And guess what? They were being thrown out of the synagogues they grew up in. The synagogues that their family attended every Shabbat, they're now being cast out as evildoers. This is happening. At the same time, Gentiles all over the world are flooding in to the faith. I mean, you want to talk about turning your entire world upside down? We're at this moment, the first century, everything was rocked to the core. So you got Gentiles coming into the faith, but then you have something else that happened. You don't just have the rabbis persecuting the Messianic Jews. Now you have, for the first time in Christian's history, which wasn't that long, the first time you have officially the government starting to rise against her. And isn't it interesting, how does it start? It starts with the rumblings. It starts with a campaign of propaganda. It starts when you start to see the government becoming more and more intolerant towards your beliefs. Let me ask you something. Does that sound familiar? Because you you need to look at what is going on in this country right now with the government and what is being said and their thoughts on Judeo-Christianity, what they really think of it, it is eerily reminiscent of where Rome was at before 64 AD. And then when 64 AD comes, man, something happens. It hits a crescendo. You had the great fire of Rome. Oh, and then at that time, because we had this catastrophe, now it's the Christians' fault. And they began to burn them at the stake, literally lighting the night up, burning Christians alive. It was, it was mounting, it was growing more and more intolerant until they had that opportunity to put all that on them. I'm going to tell you right now, this epistle, its historical context, every aspect of about it, relevant for today. It is relevant, it's mind-blowing. And so, there's a little backdrop in regard to the date, a little context. Let's move on to the author. Who is the author? Well, it's pretty simple. We know right off the bat, it is Jude, or in the Greek, Eudes. This is important, Eudes, or as, as you would say, there's different ways we translate it, uh, Judas, or Judah, right? And so Jude is this author, but fortunately, because, you know, this name was extremely, Eudes was extremely common, Judah, Judas, extremely common name in the first century, That doesn't exactly narrow it down. The writer knows this. And what's he do? He goes on and says, I'm a bondservant of the Messiah Yeshua. Oh, and I am a brother of James. I'm a brother of James. Who's he talking about? Because he's assuming his audience knows exactly who he's talking about. I mean, this is a a heavy hitter. This Yaakov. Well, when you actually know who he's talking about, he is the prince, the Nazi of the court. The court that Yeshua himself seated to take possession of Jerusalem to be the highest governing law in the world. It's the apostolic court. And James is the one that you read about in Acts 15, who actually he himself is the one who renders the verdict. When that total controversy broke out in regard to what do we do with these Gentiles who are coming in? They're uncircumcised. What are we going to do with them? You know, some of the believing Pharisees said, no, they have to be circumcised. Paul and Barnabas rise up and say, no. Peter rises up, give his testimony. He says, no. 
And it is James that renders the verdict. This guy is the, probably the most influential, most well-known believer uh, on the face of the planet at the time. Jude is his brother. All oh, the plot thickens when you actually take it a step further and you realize who James is beyond that because guess what? This James the just, as they call, he was the literal biological brother of Yeshua. Follow that to its logical conclusion, because if that is the case, then who is Jude? He's the biological brother to Yeshua. This is, this is the guy that we're about to step into his book. Now, it's interesting we re, what's recorded in Matthew 13. A list of Yeshua's brothers are given. We read this. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James? James the just. Joseph or Joseph, Simon? Oh, Eudas. Now, here, you wouldn't typically connect the dots if you're just reading your Bible in the English because we just read Jude 1.1, and it said Jude. He's the guy. But you'll notice here they translated Judas, but know this. When you go to the Greek, it's the exact same name. We just called Jude Jude in the book of Jude so as to kind of separate it, if you will. And I guess everyone else is called Eudas or Judas or Judah. You got it? And so here we see, man... This guy that we're coming into, this is awesome to be able to read a a, a book by him. Now, there is one more uh, tidbit of history that I want to share with you in regard to Jude and appreciating how influential this man really is uh, in the faith, how revered he was. And the way I want to do this is I want to take you back in time. I'm going to take you back to Eusebius, this prolific a Christian historian. And Eusebius records this. Here it is. But when the same Domitian, and just for clarity, what are we talking, when he says this Domitian, he's referring to the emperor of Rome, who was the actual emperor from 81 to 96 AD. Okay, so this is giving you a, a timetable here, which interestingly enough, if you, I mean, we could take this even further, uh, this timetable helps you understand when the actual book of Jude was written. And it would uh, testify to what I'm saying to you uh, that it was probably written in the 60s. Okay, but we'll move on from that. But when this same Domitian had commanded that the descendants of David should be slain, an ancient tradition says that some of the heretics brought accusation against who? The descendants of Jude, said to have been a brother of the Savior according to the flesh, on the ground that they were of the lineage of David and were related to Mashiach himself, Hegesippus, now Hegesippus, this is important, Hegesippus comes from the second century. That's important. I mean, early second century, now we're getting early attestation. So Hegesippus relates the facts, these facts in the following words. Listen to this. Now, what we're reading is Hegesippus now. Of the family of the Lord, there were still living the grandchildren of Jude, who is said to have been the Lord's brother, according to the flesh. Information was given that they belonged to the family of David, and they were brought to the emperor Domitian by the Avocatists, for Domitian feared the coming of Christ, as Herod also had feared it. That, that puts things into context. Domitian is trembling. Herod was terrified. There would be another king coming. 
Because he, you know, Herod called himself the king of the Jews. I mean, it shows you, you know, these, these Roman emperors were delusional. They wanted to be worshipped. They thought they were God. Now, continuing on. Here we go. And when they were asked concerning Christ in his kingdom of what sort it was and where and when it was to appear, they answered that it was not a temporal nor an earthly kingdom, but in a heavenly and angelic one, which would appear at the end of the world when he should come in the glory to judge the quick and the dead and to give unto everyone according to his works. Man, that sounds apostolic. I mean, right from the mouth of the apostles, total truth. And we continue. Upon hearing this, Domitian did not pass judgment against them, but despising them as of no account, he let them go and by a decree put a stop to the persecution of the church. There's all sorts of discussions about Domitian doing this because he was typically, this is not a friend of the church at all. But when they were released, now listen to this. This is, the, this is the descendants of Jude. When they were released, they ruled the churches because they were witnesses and oh, and they were also relatives of the Lord. And peace being established, they lived until the time of Trajan. These things are related by Hegesippus. Absolutely fascinating. You see that the descendants of Jude were ones at the time ruling the churches. If that be the case, who is this Jude? How revered, how influential was he that even his children's children were ruling the churches? That puts this really into perspective of who we're dealing with here. Moving ahead, who's the intended audience well, we learn this, Jude, a bondservant of the Messiah, Yeshua, and brother of James, to those who are called. And in the Greek, it's tois kletois, and I put it up here. But there's a little bit of discussion in regard to this, you know, kind of take you behind the veil of, of this, the, the communication scholars are having, because you have some scholars saying, well, the actual intended audience here, what's being described, those who are called, is absolutely exclusively Messianic Jews. And there's reasons given. Actually, the primary reason is, is the fact that within this book, there is Jewish apocalyptic narrative. There's a reference to Jewish apocalyptic literature. And so, you know, thought of some scholars is because of that, that's not something that you would list. That's not something you would talk about if you were talking about Gentile converts or Gentiles coming into the faith. There's another side of the coin that says, well, you know, wait a second. I, I think based upon what he's saying here, it may be uh, for the whole mass of the faith, both Jew and Gentile. Maybe that is what Jude is presenting well, I want to dig into this just a little bit. And, and what I want to do is I want to take you to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Because Paul makes an interesting statement here. It's absolutely fascinating. He says this. Now follow this. To those who are called. He says the exact same thing that Jude says. To those who are called. This is his audience. The intended audience. Paul comes on. He says to those who are called. But then he adds both Jews and Greeks. Mashiach is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, that's interesting. This is something that should be brought to the table to understand, well, 
the intended audience might just simply be a little more than exclusively the Messianic Jews, considering the fact that if, in fact, this epistle was written, when we think it's written, okay, in the mid-60s, Gentiles have been pouring into the faith for quite some time now. It would make sense that he would say these words just as the Apostle Paul said these words, and that it would refer to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I mean, it's a thought. And, and here, at the end of the day, you know, we can, we can go back, we can volley back and forth. Well, I think this and I think that. At the end of the day, you know where we can land? We can land on this. Over 1,900 years, the epistle of Jude has been read, revered, studied, upheld as divinely inspired by both Jews and Greeks. That's where we can land. We know this for certain. There's another aspect here to those of being called that we're going to dig into that I, I really find uh, fascinating and powerful. But I'm going to shelf this for a second. And we're going to plow through. We're going to get to our last point and then we'll circle back. The last point I want to make here is the legitimacy or the attestation. You know, going back to the second century, and this is very, very early. I mean, this is the earliest attestation. Jude was looked at as inspired, divinely inspired, authoritative. And this is important, at least to me. And so we can go back to the second century, and we know something that came on the scene is known as the Mauritarian Fragment. Now again, historical context is vital. What is happening in the second century? Gnosticism is growing. Marcionism, according to Tertullian, has embittered the whole mass of the faith. This is second century. And so what you have is you have all these letters all going out saying, well, they're Christian. These are all Christian letters written to Christians. See, it wasn't like today, you know, we got our little Baptist community here and we got our Lutheran community and then you got your Catholic community. You know, in the first century, you had Gnostics weaving in and out of different Christian circles. You have Marcionites going forth trying to get into all the churches and be a part of that. This is the whole concept of wolves in sheep's clothing. And you know what they're doing? It's not just coming and having a conversation. They're writing letters. Letters that look authoritative. And we have all these, we have Gnostic letters to, still to this day. We have evidence of all these letters. And so the market is getting flooded with all sorts of corrupt ideologies. And what it did is it rocked the church. Now you're forced to scramble and say, okay, well, time out. We need to start isolating these specific documents right now. And we need to see what is inspired. We need to close it. We need to start putting up some guardrails and say, these books are safe. I mean, we're going to have people coming into the church. We need to be able to protect them and say, these are the books that you want to read. These are the, right, these are the New Testament writings in addition to the Tanakh. And so here it, uh, comes along the moratorium fragment. And the, it, the whole thing is about listing out those books that could be trusted. Those books that are divinely inspired. And you know, one of the books that are listed, interestingly enough, is Jude. And this is an actual quote. But the letter of Jude and the two superscribed with the name of Yochanan are accepted in the Catholic Church. And I'm not going to get into the reality of what that term meant in the second century to what it means today. It's very, very different. But I'm not going to go there. Stay with me. Um, continuing on, still staying in the second century, we have more than the moratorium fragment, 
We have other external sources testifying of the same thing, believing the same thing. Tertullian is one. Tertullian, second century guy. He comes on the scene, prolific apologist. He comes on the scene, he testifies to Jude, and what's so absolutely fascinating is how he does it. I'm not going to show it to you today, I'm going to save that one, because how he does it is mind-blowing. But suffice it to say, Tertullian comes on the scene, he testifies of its authenticity. It wasn't just uh, Tertullian, but then you also have Clement of Alexandria, second century. We have another source, a guy coming on the scene saying, this is legitimate, And so what I want to do is I want to take you to Eusebius, who is quoting from Clement, okay? And Eusebius says this, and we're going to learn a lot about this epistle. Among the disputed writings, which are nevertheless recognized by many. Okay, so I want to stop right there. You got to catch this. They're disputed writings. I mean, if you're not familiar with the New Testament, Uh, in the fact that many of the books of the New Testament were disputed. It's not like they dropped out of the sky and, and, you know, halo came over them and everybody said, ooh, this is, you know, this is divinely inspired. That's not how it worked. The the books offered and suffered from much dispute. The book of Hebrews was disputed. Uh, The book of Revelation was disputed. And you're going to read a bunch of other books that were disputed right now. But, and this is why I highlighted, which are nevertheless recognized by many, are extant meaning existence, we have them, the so-called epistle of James, oh, and that of Jude, and the second epistle of Peter, and those who are called uh, the second and third of John. All of these books were being disputed. Now, it's interesting that these books were being disputed for different reasons. In fact, I can tell you the, the, the epistle of James, that was being disputed at the time of the Reformation. I mean, Luther called it an epistle of straw. People had issues with James. Why? Because you can't say we're justified by works. Haven't you read the rest of the New Testament? And James does it. So people had issues. They're like, they wrestled with this. And yet we know, and rightfully so, it's part of the canon today. But it was, it was disputed. Well, that's a completely different reason than why Jude is disputed. Completely different. And I'll get to that in a moment, but let's continue on. Eusebius is going to uh, comment on Clement's commentary here. And so Eusebius goes on, he says, To sum up briefly, he, Clement, has given in the uh, hypotyposis abridged accounts of all canonical scripture, not omitting the disputed books. And he specifically comes out and says, he refers to Jude and to the other Catholic epistles. And just to be clear so that you understand the terminology that's being used here when he says Catholic epistles, he's referring to the book of James. He's referring to the book of First and Second Peter. He's referring to First, Second, Third John, and then the seventh one would be Jude. All of which, to this very day, we identify as Holy Scripture. Every bit of it. Now, getting to the point that I told you I wanted to make here in regard to why is Jude disputed. Fortunately, we have Jerome's writings, and Jerome comes from the fourth century, and that is a pivotal time to be alive. It's one of the most instrumental moments. That that, that hundred years, you would say, and actually we could boil it down to about 30, but that hundred year period 
was monumental uh, on the impression it would leave for, for the rest of the generations to come. And Jerome is a part of this. And this is the very same Jerome who's responsible for the Vulgate, right? Translating the Bible into Latin. Reigning Bible for like a thousand years. Look at what he tells us. This is a historical gem. Jude, the brother of Yaakov, left a short epistle, which is reckoned among the seven Catholic epistles, which we just covered. And then he goes on, and because in it he quotes from the apocryphal book of Enoch, it is rejected by many. Nevertheless, by age and use, it has gained authority and is reckoned among the holy scriptures. Now that's very helpful information. As you're reading through and you're seeing all these different books that are being disputed, and understand they're being disputed for different reasons, now we have an understanding, why is Jude, why was Jude being disputed? It's because he quotes from the Jewish apocalyptic book of Enoch. Now, there's, we're going to go into depth on that, not today, but I will save that when we get to that portion we're going to dig into that further and further. And there's some things that uh, I'm going to bring to the table that are, are, are going to be helpful for you. And uh, even to this day, I can tell you Jude is disputed to this day. Christians really, they, they get awkward when you start talking about the book of Enoch. It freaks them out. And we, I, want to, I want to alleviate some of the uh, ignorance that is out there in regard to this book. And, and even commentaries uh, by some early church fathers in regard to this and how they viewed this, uh, such as Tertullian. It's going to be some awesome insight. I, I, I promise you that. But all this to say, this gives us a little bit of background on what this book is, uh, what this looks like, who the author is. And, uh, you know, just as a side note, uh, and I'll put this up on the screen. I hope I, I did. Just as a side note, notice all of these things happened in the 4th century. You have Athanasius' Easter letter, 367 AD, the councils of Hippo, 393, and the council of Carthage in 397. What are these? Why are these significant? Because in each one of these, they came out at an ecumenical level, if you will, and imposed a closed canon of the exact 27 books we now have in our Bible, in the New Testament. This is the time period. See, this was the time period of Jerome. And so that's why I tell you this is a very, very significant time because they said enough is enough. No more of these crazy letters being dispersed. We are going to lock it down. And these 27 books, this is what we call scripture. And so just to give you a little bit of insight. Now, with that said, I want to take you back to Jude, and let's dig into his greeting. Jude, a bondservant of Messiah Yeshua and brother of James. I'm going to put this up here in the Greek, and I've color-coded it for you. Eudas, Isu, Christu, doulos. In other words, he's saying Jude, a bondservant, that, that term doulos is slave. That's what it means. Now, you got to understand what Jude is doing right off the bat. Jude is professing his identity. This is so critical. The most important thing to him to mention above all else comes first. And that is he is a doulos of Yeshua. He's a slave to him. Jude does not have an identity crisis. 
at all. Now, some of you chuckle because, you know, the reality is, is I've met several believers over the years that have a major identity crisis. You know, people that are given, have you ever met those people that are given to every wind of doctrine? The worst thing for them to do is go on the, on, online, on the internet, because they come back with all sorts of crazy notions. They're drinking out of, you know, 50 different polluted wells. And they're more confused than when they got in. They don't even know how to process the lies and the deception. How do you process that? I, I'm going I'm to share something with you, a reality. People that are given to that have an identity crisis. Their identity is not locked and loaded in Christ. And so they're tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. This is, this is one thing that I can guarantee across the board. If we don't get this right, if we don't get our identity right, we are going to be in trouble. You know, I think of the LGBTQ community and, and people like, you know, most of you know Luca Agropoli, right? You know, they, they, have a, they have a conference coming up called Reclaim It. The, the whole concept of the name is to reclaim their identity. That's the whole concept. See, see, the thing about it is people that are struggling in, in that, with those same-sex attractions and getting involved in that, they have a lot of displaced anger. They don't know what to do with themselves. They got people hating on them at the same time. Not helpful. And you know what they're doing? They're looking for an identity. They're looking for somewhere to fit in. This is why people go into gangs where you can get these kids that are very displaced and these kids want an identity. If you do not have Christ as your identity, you're completely lost. If you're not a doulos to him, you're lost. And all these things, that all, these, all these attacks by the enemies, all the lies by the enemies, he's going to come in. You have no defense. You have zero defense against these things because you have an identity crisis. He's not your Messiah. You are not his doulos. I love Paul's words in Romans 6.16. He says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death, oh, I love this, or obedience leading to righteousness. Do you understand what a doulos is? Paul's explaining what a doulos is, what a slave to Yeshua is. It's being totally committed to follow him. It's about, you know, when, when Jude talks about this, it's about being a bondservant of Christ. It's, it's literally about saying, you know what? I'm dedicated to you. I understand the relationship that I'm in. You know, if you don't understand the relationship that you're in with Christ, you have an identity crisis. Jude understands. The apostle Paul understood. We are slaves, meaning our sole goal in life is to carry out my master's bidding. I only want to do him good. I want to build up his house. I want to do his house well. I want to labor and serve for him. My life is completely his. Every aspect. Jude has reserved nothing. He has not reserved compartments in his heart for the world. Because he is a doulos. He is a slave to Yeshua. And I'm, I'm telling you, this is where we need to be. We need to be where Jude is. And for me, this is a prolific opening. I'm a doulos of Yeshua, first thing. And then, of course, he goes on and says, and he is the brother of James. And then he goes on and he says this, to those who are called, 
Another way to say this is to those who are invited. To those who are invited, I think of Yeshua's words in Matthew 22. So awesome. He says, and Yeshua answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, the kingdom of Shemaim is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants. Oh, to call those who were invited. This is the call to the wedding. And they were not willing to come. When Jude's talking about to those who are called, they're called to what? They're called to the wedding. This is his audience. The people called to the wedding. Verse 4. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. This is an invitation. But they made light of it and they went their ways, one to his own farm and another to his business. They were too busy to come to the wedding. They didn't have time. They got busy with the things of the world and the things of the world took precedence over them Listen to me, being a doulos. I don't have a time to be a slave to Yeshua. I don't have time to pray. I don't have, apparently, I don't have time to pray over my family. I don't have time to read, read the word. I don't have time to, to pick up the phone and call my brother and give him some love, much needed love that could keep him out of hell. I don't have time because I got to get these, I got to build my kingdom. I got so many earthly things that I need to do. And rejecting this invitation. Verse 6. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies and destroyed those murders and burned up their city. Wow, what is Yeshua prophesying about? AD 70. Said the armies of Rome and, and literally burned the city to the ground. Because we know, and we read this, I don't know, a week or two ago that uh, they didn't know the time of their visitation, Luke 19. They did not know the time of their visitation. They totally reject. Here you have the bridegroom literally coming himself to his own people, inviting them to the wedding. I don't got time, and I will not be your doulos. We're not going to bow before you. We're not going to serve you. This is what happened. Verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready. You know, that's one of the things Yeshua made very clear in in his writings as you read the Gospel of John, right? He says, look at the fields. They are white for harvest. It's time to put the sickle to the grain, right? Then he said, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Oh, I love this. Therefore, go out into the highways, and as many as you find, call, invite, to the wedding. You know why that fascinates me? It's, it's interesting. What ended up happening? Yeshua comes. They didn't accept him. The city is burned to the ground. What does Yeshua command his apostles to do, though? After his resurrection, what does he command them to do? Go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all the things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. I mean, this is, this is, so in this parable, you literally see life playing out. You're to do this. You're to go and invite them. And so we read, pick that up in Revelation 19, 9. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. Blessed are they who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. These things 
Uh, these are true sayings of God. And so as we look at this, we look at Jude, Jude, a bondservant, a Messiah, Yeshua, brother of James, to those who are called. It's talking about being called to the marriage supper of the lamb. It's being called to the wedding. It's being called to the lamb himself. This is what we're being called. Now, getting into 2 Peter, as I forewarned you, we're going to be using this as a companion. I want to put this up here next to uh, Jude. And what we read in 2 Peter is this. Simon Peter, a bondservant and an apostle of Messiah Yeshua. Look at that. This is virtually identical as Jude's opening. The only difference is, is Peter, and rightfully so, adds apostle of Yeshua because he was one of the 12 apostles. Jude was not. So same intro. But then he goes on and says, instead of saying to those who are called, look at what Peter says. To those who have obtained like precious faith with us. In other words, I, I want to narrow this down for you. When Jude talks about to those who are called, he's not talking about someone who just heard the gospel but did not accept it. He is talking about exactly what Peter is talking about, those who have attained like precious faith. They've accepted the invitation. This is his context. The, this is, and this is important as we get into next week because what we're going to discover is, is guess what? Jude's talking to the church. He's going to address the church, those who have like precious faith. Then he goes on, this is still his introduction, sanctified by God the Father. You know, hagiadso in the Greek. Hagiadso is it's sanctified, it's made holy. You have been made holy, you've been purified. You were called, you accepted the call to the wedding. You accepted the reality, I need to be a doulos, and you're purified. And then we read this, and preserved in Messiah Yeshua. There it is. Preserved in Messiah Yeshua. Now, Terrell, this, this term preserved is the Greek equivalent to the Hebrew shamar. And follow me, listen to me carefully because you, you, you have a benefit here. We just got done doing the, the Aaronic benediction, the Birkat Kohanim, that priestly blessing. We're very, very familiar with this. And what I'm showing you right now, Jude is about to unleash it. Because this term, shamar in the Hebrew or, or terel in, in the Greek, it means to keep, right? And what does he say? May the Lord bless you and keep you. This is central, but then it gets better. He goes on and says, in verse 2, mercy, grace, peace, and love be multiplied to you. You know, grace, mercy, and peace, these were the anchors of the priestly blessing. So he opens this book up in a very, very powerful way. I mean, the most powerful way you could. There's nothing more powerful than the priestly blessing for God's character, for his heart, and his favor to fall on you. That is an awesome thing, and that's what he does here. And you'll notice, did I put it up here? I did. Peter, <laughs> you never know. Peter does the same thing. Grace and peace be multiplied by you. Identical statement. I mean, and I just show you this because the, the sermons are uncanny. They are so similar. We're going to end here uh, for today.